to the extent that is the American Bar Association Business Law Section's podcast series. Our podcasts provide general information. They aren't a substitute for legal advice from a licensed professional. We offer both standalone and serial podcasts on a variety of topics and welcome your feedback and suggestions at ababusinesslaw.americanbar.org. We hope you enjoy your selection. everyone, and welcome to the American Bar Association's Data Security and Privacy Podcast in affiliation with the Thomas R. Klein School of Law at Drexel University. I am Jordan Fisher, your host of the podcast, and I am incredibly excited to be sitting down today to talk with Jody Westby. So Jody, welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm so pleased to be with you today. So, Jody, can you just introduce yourself and what your current role is, what you're currently doing on your day-to-day? Okay. Yeah, well, so I am CEO of Global Cyber Risk. I also have a law firm side uh, that is Global Cyber Legal. Um, Primarily work out of the Global Cyber Risk side, but this year has been a little bit half and half. And um, I founded that company in 2000 and um, have been doing um, cybersecurity consulting, privacy consulting uh, through Global Cyber Risk since that time, and some very interesting engagements with government as well as private sector. I primarily now only work with the private sector. And so that's what I'm doing. I'm having a good time being a female entrepreneur. That's fantastic, and I love to hear about female founders. Um, and it would be really interesting to hear, how did you first uh, enter into this space? I mean, you've owned a business for um, a little over 20 years now in cyber technology privacy. So I'd love to hear sort of what was your first, um, uh, you know, entrance into the space generally? Well, I decided when I was 18 that I wanted to get into computers. and The only programs that were in universities at that time were scientific computer programs. And um, I wanted to do the business side. So I went to what would be a trade school that specialized in in, um, teaching people how to work with computing machinery. And it included everything from, you know, the punch card things that you had there were readers of, to sort and order punch cards. And then there were other machines that you would wire boards. It was really <laughs> antiquated. But I went to this school and I learned how to do all this stuff. And, um, and then I got a job working at a, a young company that two at former IBM guys founded. It was down in the Port of Long Beach. It's called Mar- Marine Information Systems, MIST. And um, we had the, the ships parked right outside the door, um, and we, we were doing all of the bills of lading and the processing for these cargo ships that were coming in and out of the port of Long Beach. So that was my first job, and I was working with a, a small computer then. At that time, we had to learn how to write programs and do it in like 8K of, of memory, which <laughs> is pretty hard. 
And um, so I started getting into computers and, and I built a career in that and ended up working at the Williams companies and American Airlines and um, ended up being in charge of their database management study corporate wide for American. That's when databases came around. So that was my journey. I was just this woman that got started in this and got in the field. And at that time, um, a lot of people were doing that. I mean, they were going to trade schools to learn how to do these things or just teaching themselves and getting into the field. But that's what I did. And it allowed, so I did everything from first the operations to then programming, then systems analysis, and then finding database administration. And so um, that was the technology career that I had. And then I um, got married and was pregnant and had a child and said, you know, I want to take some time off and be with my baby. And I did that. And then when I needed to go back to work, I said, you know, I, I don't really want to go back into that space because I was getting called out of bed in the middle of the night to come fix systems that blew up and stuff like that. And so I decided, someone said, well, you should be an attorney. I said, well, that's great. I don't even have an undergraduate degree. Well, they said, no, you'd be a great attorney. So I checked it out and I went back to school and I went year round with overload schedules and graduated um, in two years and three months from my undergraduate school, University of Tulsa, um, summa cum laude. And then I was accepted to Georgetown Law and moved with my son to Washington, D.C. to go to Georgetown Law School. And um, in that first year of law school, my ex's family, um, who they were wealthy and they didn't like that I had gotten five years of rehabilitative alimony. And I don't know what happened, but they got an appeals court to reverse it retroactively. So I was suddenly in the most one of the most expensive cities in the country and the most expensive law school in the country at the time and no money. And so then I went to the Georgetown Employment Assistance and Financial Assistance Offices. And the two women there were amazing. And they helped me borrow as much money as possible. And I got a job as a summer associate. And so I worked. I even took a class or two that summer to try to get, you know, keep the the hours up I needed. And I managed to go through law school and um, I didn't let them defeat me. I got through law school and and um, started a new life. So that's that's kind of how I became took my technology career and became a lawyer. And then I was working in a think tank and a guy came down the hall and said, come listen to this conversation. And I went down to listen to it. And there were some people talking about they were all upset about these environmental protection rules that re- would require you to fill out this form of all of these risks. If you had a chemical spill or a gas leak and what would be the risk to this and, and fight to parks and streams and wildlife and schools nearby and hospitals. And I looked at this and said, this, is, this isn't an environmental issue. This is a security issue. And Um, I wrote an article about how this would be a roadmap for a terrorist organization and was one of the first articles to put Osama bin Laden in there. And um, 
so it was a natural thing that women do. We build on what we know and we're, we're just made that way because we know we have to be mothers. We be professional people. We know how to multi-process and how to wear different hats. So then I, and, and, and then critical infrastructure protections came out and the white house was talking about all this. So I said, you know, I, I understand this. I understand how to take technology and I could see that it was, you know, going to really impact the field of law. So I pulled the two together and sort of created an interesting career for myself. Wow, that is just an incredible journey to where you are today. Um, and I love the perseverance and your ability to really think creatively and sort of see opportunities that were out there because, um, you know, even five years ago, it felt like technology, privacy, security, and the law were in its infancy. So I can't imagine all the way back when you initially were going down this path to sort of have that foresight. Um, and I would love to hear from your perspective, you know, sitting here at the juncture of cyber risk, privacy, and the law um, over the last 20 years, how has your perspective evolved? How has the world evolved um, as you've sort of gone through that ownership journey and providing services to a wide variety of clients? Yeah, you know, it's such a good question. The um, the American Bar Association, I've always been very involved with them, especially the section of science and technology law, but also business law. And so way back in like 2002, I got really interested. I, I was very interested in international aspects and I took a lot, whatever courses I could in international law at Georgetown. And then when I started practicing, I was practicing international trade law. So I developed a good understanding of international law and, and what, what that really means. And, and then I could see that there was this real problem with international investigations of cyber crimes. So I got a leadership position on the Privacy and Computer Crime Committee over there in the Science and Technology Law section. And, um, and then we started writing a book <clears throat> and I became chair of the committee. And so we, in that committee, we wrote International Guide to Cybersecurity, International Guide to Pri uh, Privacy, International Guide to Combating Cybercrime. And then we wrote a roadmap for an enterprise security program, how you really pull that together. And so that really <clears throat> allowed me to bring my international background into this topic because the internet is global. And mm -hmm. so it allowed me in the beginning to think about it from the international perspective. So when you ask me how my perspective on cyber law and technology evolved, it's evolved in a view that has been global. And it's had to evolve to keep pace with the threat environment and the criminals. They were winning then, they're still winning today on the new technologies and capabilities, on the legal requirements, like there are now 27 states that have cybersecurity requirements for protecting personal information. And um, um, it's all merged together so that the cyber law and technology, you know, increasingly are interwoven. And we're seeing that in laws now. The new California Privacy Rights Act has provisions in there for use of technology to manage some compliance requirements. Um, but it's also, because we're looking at this globally, enabled um, me to really view it 
from a perspective that's very valuable to multinational corporations, looking at you know the global um, legal framework, looking at um, the global standards for information security. And so we've also developed a lot of expertise in best practices and standards for cybersecurity and privacy. And those always, you know, start dovetailing with the laws. So the perspective just keeps evolving. And the main, I guess the main anchor is knowing that you have to keep pace. And Mm -hmm. it's fun because I get to work with a lot of young people and new people and, and some of the wonderful, you know, original creators of the internet and people that have really been there since it, it came out in 1995, I think it was, and 94 maybe. And um, so it's, it's just been very interesting. Um, the, I think the, the perspective that has evolved the most is the legal perspective, because of course, the technology changes when we get new technology and all that. But the legal issues are very interesting, but unfortunately, they haven't been solved. And so we still have these same legal problems in tracking and tracing and investigating cyber crimes. So it's been, just been a really interesting space to work in. And you always feel like you're staying young, you're keeping up, you're, you've got new issues to learn all the time. And like I said, you work with such a broad range of people and with, it's with men and women. And um, so it's really, it's really a nice field. No, I, and I love um, how you phrase that because it is incredibly dynamic. It's a diverse field. Um, you get to work in multidisciplinary teams all the time, which I personally find is incredibly beneficial for myself because I'm a lifelong learner. Um, yeah. But then also just keeping it interesting. I am curious, since you have been in this field for for those two decades, it feels to me that the last five years and maybe even, you know, maybe the last three or four years, we, it, it's changing at a, at a pretty rapid pace. Is that, do you think that the pace has sped up to change the law and sort of the way we're approaching technology? Or do you think we've always been at this rapid pace, maybe we're just more aware of it now in a way that we never have been before? I don't think it's changing at a more rapid pace. I I think the rapid pace was when European Union passed the Data Protection Directive, when states started passing the breach notification laws, when um, standards started being revised, like the 27,001, ISO 27,001. I think the first iteration of that was 2005. Um, and... Uh, then before that, it was the British standard. And so to me, it's been more stable in that respect. Yes, you know, we now have 50 states with breach notification laws, but that's been that way for quite a long time. And um, and we're getting, you know, increasing requirements on cybersecurity. But I think actually the legal framework has sort of settled in. Um, the European Union's really running things. Um, you know, globally, they, they've really grabbed the global stage on privacy and they're grabbing it on cybersecurity. And um, we are just sort of flailing around. So I really see uh, technology that's evolved a lot over the last two decades. Um, When you think about the iPhone and that really was the beginning of pushing out the mobile devices. And so the technology's changed a lot. Um, 
And I think the law, though, has, you know, it for the last decade is pretty stable. I mean, we went from European Data Protection Directive to GDPR, and we've had HIPAA for quite a long time now. We had Gramm-Leach-Bliley for a long time. So we've kind of got our part on this side of the pond with what type of data do we protect, financial data or medical data or children's data. Um, we um, really are a, a fragmented legal framework. So I see where where the the growth has been has been in the threat environment that has changed dramatically, and um, with the technology. Now that's a really interesting point because we do. If you look at a lot of the laws that we currently are leveraging, you know they have dates of 1995 or um, you know even earlier. So that that is a really great point. Um, I wanted to ask you, so you, you mentioned that you, you've written a number of books for the ABA in the past, but you actually recently published a new book this um, this year called DNO Guide to Cyber Governance, Fiduciary Duties in the Digital Age. Mm-hmm. Uh, can you give listeners an overview of uh, that book and what it covers? Yeah, it's a book that was published with the business law section. And the one thing that you know we really see is why are the bad guys winning? Well, the bad guys are winning, one, because it's hard to investigate cyber crimes, but they're winning primarily because companies haven't spent the money they need to spend to protect their systems. And part of that is because the boards in the C-suite are not giving them the money they need to do because they don't understand what they're doing in managing cyber risk. So it became very clear. There's, I, I got very interested in this topic way back in 2008. I did a survey on how boards and executives were governing cybersecurity and privacy. That was through my role as distinguished fellow at Carnegie Mellon um, Scilab. So then in 2010, I did another survey. These were all with the backing and and sponsorship of Forbes, who I used the the first one, we used the Fortune 1000 list, but the second, third and fourth surveys, we use the Forbes Global 2000 list. And um, I tracked the findings in 2008, 2010, 2012, and 2015 on how boards were governing privacy and security. And it was very interesting. And so I've been interested in this space for a long time, but it's very clear that, you know, they really have been asking interesting questions a couple of times a year they still have the CISO reporting to the CIO. They're still letting the CIO come in and give them a briefing on what the security is. They, they still believe that CIOs understand security. They don't. And so um, I could see that this, this was a problem area and, and this needed um, to be addressed. And I, in full forgiveness of them, we haven't produced anything really very good in guiding them. There's been... There's a, a, a lot of, of documents that have been developed on this topic, um, and many of them since I did my last study in 2015, so, you know, in the last seven, eight years. But generally, there are chapters written by different people. They're thrown together. They're boiling the ocean on pr- threats and on problems, and, and they're filled with acronyms, and they either... They either tell the board too much or they tell them too technically. 
mm-hmm. or, or they or they don't really set out. And, and I said, God, I'm going to write a book that says, here's what you do when you govern. Here are your responsibilities. And here's what you have to know. There's now an ISO standard on governing information security, ISO 27,014. We now have laws like New York State as uh, requires the an officer of the company to sign off every year that they've reviewed their security program. And um, they have to submit that to the New York Department of Financial Services. Also, we have similar things going on in about 11 or 12 states that have adopted the National Association of Insurance Commissioners model data security law. That also has a similar requirement. Um, California Privacy Rights Act requires um, uh, privacy impact assessments and and, uh, certain things notifying the um, privacy authorities. So I have seen um, how boards really need to get their act together because it's not just about them overseeing what other people are supposed to be doing. There are now direct and specific responsibilities that board members should be taking to govern cyber risk. And so I said, okay, first of all, they need to understand their own risk because we're seeing a flurry of cyber event-related lawsuits um, coming out after an event. We're seeing a lot of derivative shareholder suits where the board's getting sued for not paying attention to what was going on. Um, There, We're also seeing securities class action suits where the stock price has been hit. And so... Um, as they're saying that, you know, you, you deceived your investors. You, you had investors buying stock in your company without telling them the risks associated with, with your operations due to cyber. And so these are real risks. I mean, they suddenly have legal compliance issues. They have international standards. They have threats of lawsuits. And then Delaware case law changed. And, and for regulated industries, and certainly we consider privacy and cybersecurity a regulated area now, there are these specific responsibilities. So I set out a, a book where I say very clearly, here's your job. Here, here's what the fiduciary duties you have, what that means, and lead them through some of the, that case holding um, that, to guide them in that. And then here are compliance requirements, giving them just a US view, but there's five pages of laws that apply to privacy and cybersecurity that I set out there. Um, I tell them about best practices and standards for information security, and I tell them about um, how to, what their role would be and how to manage an incident response. And, and also, you know, how do you set up a governance framework? So um, boards really need to have a governance framework established saying, here are the risks we've identified for our organization, and here are the key information flows we need for us to be able to monitor and keep our eyeballs on these risks. And um, here are the um, controls and activities we need to have in place. And, and all of that boils down to you know, a framework. Well, you don't just do that overnight and it takes some work to identify those things and establish the right kind of framework and to get your board up to speed and, and get them aware of the threat environment. So. Um, I put together this book that really is intended to be a guide and um, uh, a a cookbook, if you will, for how to be um, a board member or a senior executive and manage cyber risk. 
we provide a checklist at the back and then I put in a nice glossary. It's what I, I call it cheat sheet on cyber lingo. And so I put in some of the key definitions from NIST that, you know, they if they hear bandied about as you're dealing with an incident or with a report, they have a place to go look this stuff up and see what it means. So the re- the reviews have been really good. I'm pleased with it. I in the book I do a top line at the beginning of a section and chapter, bullet, 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 bullet of here are the things this chapter is going to cover. And then at the end, I do a bottom line box with a summary of here's what we just covered. And that is really resonating with readers because they can, you know, if you want to do, skim through it, you can read the top and bottom line boxes. Um, but if you want to just really kind of drill back down into what you just read, then it's a nice summary. So I, I hope it helps move the needle. And, mm-hmm. uh, and I'm, you know, also hoping too that it'll enable me to build a nice consulting practice helping boards establish these governance frameworks. Yeah, and I really love how you frame that. I always talk about the journey and how it is, you know, moving that needle and and starting that journey. And it's so important to be able to articulate what can be complex problems um, and complex technologies in a way that is approachable by a wide variety of backgrounds. Mm -hmm. And so giving that primer is just so important because so many executives, they want to do the right thing. They want to understand, they want to be engaged, but it feels very intimidating. It feels very confusing. And frankly, the scare tactics are incredibly um, well discussed, I think in media and in other sources. So it really um, looks like an incredibly helpful book um, and something that's definitely needed to, like you said, move that needle. Because I think that's what we're all trying to do is There's no such thing as perfection. There's no such thing as 100% security, but it's moving that maturity to a higher level, changing that posture that is incredibly important. Um, So really appreciate that. Um, So Jody, really appreciate you coming on today. We always like to end with our guests with one final question, um, which is what is the most recent book you have read on cyber privacy law technology? um, And uh, would you recommend it? Well, I just purchased this book. Um, It's called Cybercrime Investigations, a Comprehensive Resource for Everyone. It's written by John Bandler and Antonia Merzon. And it is um, a terrific um, resource in understanding cybercrime investigations and the law for the cybercrime investigator and um, dealing with law enforcement regulators, um, identification of criminals and, and, you know, the problems with attribution. But it's just really an essential reference book that I think is, is something every attorney should have on their shelf because um, there is a gap between now that there's a gap between privacy and cybersecurity. And we've got to get those two linked together. And ISO now has standards for ISO 27001 and then 27701, which is for privacy. And NIST has the same thing. They have their, their privacy best practices now that, that dovetail with their uh, cybersecurity controls. So I think that it's very important that, that we link the technical and the legal aspects. And this book helps understand many of the you used the word opaque earlier, um, 
when we were chatting, uh, many of the opaque aspects of cybercrime. So again, it's Cybercrime Investigations, a comprehensive resource for everyone. John Bandler is the lead author and it's, I bought it off Amazon and, and he and I are doing a program together and he showed me the book. It's recently published and I said, oh, wow, I have to buy this. So that's my most recent nosedive into a, a cyber book. Well, thank you. I'll definitely be adding that to my own book list. Jody, really appreciate you joining us today. If listeners want to get in touch, what is the best way for them to connect with you? Well, I'm Westby at globalcyberrisk.com. And um, if you go to my website, my cell phone's right there. So, you know, I'm easy to catch. Great. Well, thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me. This has really been enjoyable, Jordan, and I really appreciate the opportunity. Thanks so much. Okay, bye-bye. Thank you for listening to the ABA Business Law Section's podcast series, To the Extent That. The section offers a robust collection of content. To explore more about this topic, or to learn about joining the section, visit ambar.org slash bizlaw. That's B-I-Z-L-A-W.